We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. Last Lord's Day, we began a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So I encourage you to get your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we were. That's where we started, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew as Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount. This will be a six-lesson series. We looked at the first, having to do with the citizens of the kingdom, and today we're going to focus on the righteousness of the kingdom, a part of that discussion anyway. And that'll carry us from verse 17 through the end of chapter 5. So if you don't already have a Bible open, I encourage you to get one, maybe on your phone, your tablet, or you have a hard copy, follow along with us. The message of the sermon is about the kingdom of God. I know that because prior to the beginning of the sermon, Matthew records that Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, verse 23. Scattered through all out the sermon, several references to the kingdom, to the kingdom, to the kingdom. So the sermon is about the kingdom of God. What it's like in the kingdom of the Lord. What is it all about? Here is an outline of the book, of the chapters, or that is of the sermon, as if this were an outline from which Jesus would have presented this. And that is, he makes three major points. There's the citizens of the kingdom, then there's the righteousness of the kingdom, and then there's the exhortation to enter the kingdom. We're in the section of the righteousness of the kingdom. That's where we're going to pick up beginning at verse 17. He's going to make the point it harmonizes with the Old Testament, and furthermore, it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In another study, we'll talk about righteousness of the kingdom has to do with our relationship to fellow man. Then in another study, we'll see that, that our relationship to God, first of all, chapter 6, and then it has to do with our relationship to fellow man, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. And then he gets into the invitation section. And so this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we saw last time. In verses 1 to 16, we call that the citizens of the kingdom, the kind of people that make up the kingdom of God. And so here are the characteristics, what we call the Beatitudes. And then we saw the influence they have on the world. They're like salt and they're like light. They have an influence on those who are of the world. Now let's begin focusing on the righteousness of the kingdom, beginning at verse 17. The righteousness of the kingdom. Two things we're going to see. We're going to see, first of all, verses 17, 18, and 19, those three verses, that the righteousness of the kingdom harmonizes with the Old Testament. That's an important point, particularly to those who may be in the audience, and we'll talk about those in a moment. Then the second thing we're going to see is that it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Verses uh, 20 through verse 48. Let's focus on harmonizing with the Old Testament. I want you to understand that in the mind of the Jew, the law of Moses and the tradition of the Pharisees were one and the same. That is, they held to their tradition so strong, they made them equivalent to the law of Moses. If it was written in the law, it was binding. If it was a tradition of the Jews, it was just as binding. There has already, according to Luke's account, been a conflict with Jesus. As he had healed, they're now ready and they have a conflict with Jesus just before this sermon begins, and they're ready to kill him. 
that had reached the sharp point to the idea that they are thinking, it spawned this idea that Jesus is somehow set out to destroy the law. He's teaching something different from the law. He's not teaching the law. He's not like the other rabbi. He's teaching a different law. And so he's setting out to destroy the law, and that was the charge. And I cite Acts chapter 6. This continues on. By the time Stephen is preaching, they're saying he's against Moses and against the law and against the temple. And none of that was true. That's part of the background of our story here beginning at verse 17. So let's start at verse 17. He is showing the righteousness of the kingdom harmonizes with the Old Testament. How so? Well, he's saying, I'm not coming to destroy the law. Look at verse 17a. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, he said, but to fulfill. I did not come to destroy the law. He is not saying the Old Testament is not going to be taken away. Ephesians 2 shows that it's going to be taken away, and it was taken away by the time Ephesians 2 was written. So that's not his point. He is saying, I did not come to put myself in conflict with the law of Moses or to disregard the law of Moses. I'm not here preaching something that disregards the law of Moses. I'm not setting out to destroy the law. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to do that at all. But rather, verse 17b and verse 18, I came to fulfill the law. Notice that at verse 17. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. I surely say to you that till heaven and earth passes away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass, till all has been fulfilled. What does he mean by being fulfilled? Well, he's not saying by that, I'm coming now to fulfill the law in the sense, I'm going to take every precept and principle of the Old Testament and bind it upon the citizens of the kingdom. Nor is he saying that I'm coming to fulfill it by perfect obedience. He did do that, but that's not the point here. Did Jesus keep the law perfectly? Yes, he did, and the only one who ever did. But that's not his point. What he's saying is, I am the fulfillment or the purpose of the Old Testament. Now, let's trace a couple of references here. Let's notice in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What's the point? He is the fulfillment of that law. That the law was pointing toward Christ, he is the fulfillment of that. He is the one who the law pointed to. Go to Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. So the law was pointing men to Christ. I am the fulfillment of that law. I'm the one the law and the prophets talked about. That's what he's saying in our context in Matthew chapter 5. The law and the prophets spoke about him. Let's go to Luke chapter 24 and notice in verse 44. He said, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. I didn't come to destroy the law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm the one the law and the Psalms and the prophets talked about. That's his point. He is the Messiah. Do you remember in John chapter 4 as Jesus conversed with the woman at the well? She remembered something about the Messiah and about the, the prophesied one coming, and he said he was the one. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I'm the one the Old Testament prophesied about. I'm the one the Old Testament talked about. And Jesus said none of this is going to pass. That is, none of the Old Testament is going to pass till all of these things be fulfilled. Now let's focus at verse 18 now. What a powerful verse this is. The verse says, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass until all is fulfilled. He's talking about the Old Testament. 
Not one jot of it, not one tittle of the Old Testament is going to pass until all of it is fulfilled. Every aspect of it is going to be fulfilled. Now, let's talk about what this is talking about. What is a jot? A jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Maybe like our letter A. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is not a full letter. It is a projection or a protrusion from the letter that distinguishes it from other letters like the dot on the I or the crossing of a T. It's only a part of a letter. So what Jesus is saying, it's, it's that the, the scriptures are true and reliable down to the smallest of detail. I'm not disregarding the law. I'm not setting it aside. Every jot and every tittle will be fulfilled. I have the highest respect, Jesus is saying, for the Old Testament. I am not set myself against that at all. In fact, that leads to his next point. He's still talking about it, harmonizes with the Old Testament. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it because I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in fact, in fact, verse 19, what I'm teaching and what I demand is respect for every command of God. See what he says at verse 19. He said, whoever breaks one of these of the least of the commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He probably had the Pharisees in mind who broke the law by their traditions. And we'll see that beginning in verse 20. We mentioned in our first study that perhaps the Pharisees are out on the peripherals. The disciples are there. We know that. Chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5 tells us that. The disciples are there. Chapter 6 made that point as well. There's a multitude there, we know, but perhaps the Pharisees and the scribes are out on the peripherals listening to him. And maybe he's taking a shot at them here. He probably had them in mind. They broke the law by their tradition. By breaking, it has to do with loosing and releasing the commandments of God so that we're not held by the restraints of those commandments. And what Jesus is saying is that respect for God means you treat every command with respect. There's not a command of the Old Testament I don't respect. There's not a command in the Old Testament that I would not urge people to obey. And so his point is, he's pointing to the Old Covenant, but careful and deliberate obedience to that. That's what he was urging people to do. And furthermore, that same attitude is going to be carried over into the kingdom. I have respect for every command of God, he says. No part of the law was insignificant or unimportant. However minute it may be, this may seem insignificant, but no part of it was insignificant. So what have we seen in his, in his first point about it harmonizing with the Old Testament? He said, I want to talk to you about the righteousness of my kingdom. And I want to tell you it harmonizes with the Old Testament. I'm not set out to destroy the Old Testament. I came as the fulfillment of that. But what I demand is respect for every command. And when my law becomes effective, it demands due respect for every command of God. None of it is unimportant. Now, beginning in verse 20, he's going to turn the tables and show the Pharisees and the scribes had no regard for the commands of God. But he's doing more than that. What he's going to tell us is that the righteousness of the kingdom exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Let's notice verse 20. And I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You think how that must have burned and hurt concerning those out on the peripherals of this, this multitude. 
that if you want to be in my kingdom, unless you do better than what these scribes and Pharisees do, you'll not even be in the kingdom. Now, what's he talking about? Let's talk about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is not to be equated with the law, though it was in their mind. They're not the same. The scribes were those who copied the law and they taught the law. They had knowledge of the law. And so here are the scribes, they knew the law, they copied the law, they might not have understood everything, they might not have obeyed that, but they are supposed to have understood the law because they copied it very carefully. The Pharisees were those who boasted in a, being strict keepers of the law. And that's why they would point out to Jesus, you violated the Sabbath. You, 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 your disciples violated the Sabbath. Wasn't true, but they thought their traditions were just as binding. They themselves, they thought to be strict keepers of the law. How did they handle the law? No one mutilated the law and destroyed it more than the Pharisees and the scribes. They whittled it down to fit them. They took the law and carved it out so that it fits their thinking. Perhaps we do much of the same thing. They gave great emphasis to the outward form and they overlooked so many things as we see in Matthew chapter 23. But what I want you to notice is that one could be involved in hatred and dishonesty. And at the same time, thought to be still righteous. And I cite Matthew chapter 23. They devour widows' houses. They could do that. Oh, but we're still righteous though because we wash we eat with uh, washed hands. We go through this ritual of washing our hands. See, we keep the commandments of God. Oh, we devour widows' houses. It doesn't matter about that. We can be dishonest, but we're still righteous. Now, that's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in this context, that your righteousness in the kingdom must exceed that. He is not talking about quantity, more of the same. In other words, whatever the scribes and Pharisees did, you need to do more. You measure their righteousness, if it measured to five, you need to go at least seven or maybe eight or maybe ten. That's not what he's saying. But it exceeds it in character and in nature. You need to be different than them. Their righteousness. It's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about in what he demands is an inward devotion that allows God to rule in the hearts of men. His law goes further than the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to see in the next section. Now in this section, Jesus is declaring war on the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He's not against the law, though there is a contrast in the law. Take a footnote here. That in the next section that follows... There is a direct contrast between what the old law said and what the New Testament is going to say. But there's also a contrast between their perversion and the doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees and what the law of Christ is going to have. He is against those traditions and corruptions and the hypocrisy of the Jews. So let's begin with verse 21. There's going to be a series of things now that Jesus says, now in my kingdom it's not just this. But my law goes further than the law of Moses and goes further than the scribes and the Pharisees. So here we go. Let's begin at verse 21. It is not just murder, but it's hatred and animosity that is forbidden. Now this is a difficult section. Not in the principle that's being driven, but some of the language in which it's couched. And we'll see what that is as we go further. So let's start at verse 21. He said, you've heard it's been said by those of old, you shall not murder... And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. <clears throat> so what's he talking about? 
Well, let's go to verse 22. Well, let's go, let's, go to verse, let's go back to verse 21 just for a moment. That he's saying, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Well, that was Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 20. That's obvious. And whoever murders in danger of judgment, well, that's also Old Testament principle. That was in harmony with the law. And that was correct. He said, that's what you've heard and that's what you've, been, you've, you, you've known. But my law goes further than that. How so? Now verse 22. But I say unto you, you might underline, by the way, throughout the text, Every time that he makes these contrasts, he'll say, but I say unto you, this is his law. This is the law of the kingdom. Not an explanation of the Old Testament. This is my law, the law of the kingdom, Jesus is saying. But I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. What he's saying is, it's not just murder that's condemned, but what I condemn in my kingdom and the way it'll be in my kingdom is I'm against anger without a cause. Now let's go further. He talks about what might be said in anger. Verse 22b. And whoever says to his brother Raka, that means empty head, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of fire. Now what on earth is he talking about? Well, let's stop and talk about some things that he may have reference to in this context. Jesus talks about the council or the judgment at verse 22. He talks about the council at verse 22, and then he talks about hell fire. I do not think Jesus is talking about varying degrees of offense and penalty, but he uses that to make a point. Let's see what the point may be. Let's go back to this idea of being one who says raka, that's saying to, to one empty head. Literally, that means empty head. One who would say that to them is in danger of uh, a danger of the anger without a cause, he's in danger of the judgment. Many think that he's talking about the local city officials, a seven-member council. And then one who says Raka is in danger of the council, perhaps the Sanhedrin council, 72 members. In other words, it's a higher court. And then he says, whoever says you fools shall be in danger of hell fire. That's Gehenna. Jesus is not saying that if you say this, that you might get in trouble. You might, if you do this, you might get in a little more trouble. But if you do this over here, then you're in danger of hell. That's not his point. What his point is, is because there's not much difference in saying empty head and you fool. What's the difference in that? In saying one is a fool and saying one is an airhead or an empty head. What he's saying is that the concern should not be merely the act of murder or civil authorities. What you need to be concerned about in my kingdom is the danger of hell. That's his point. So he's saying my law goes further. My law focuses on being angry without a cause. My law focuses on what might be said in anger. And furthermore, my law focuses on reconciliation. Let's see what that's about. Now, notice... At verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's his point? That your relationship to others and how you treat others is so important that it hinders your relationship to God. Your worship and your offering before God is worthless until you rectify this difference. So my law goes further than just murder. Hatred and animosity must be corrected before God accepts your worship. Now verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. 
Assuredly, I say to you, that he will by no means get out of there until he's paid the last penny. Now, his focus point is not on the judge. It's not on jail. It's on being in hell. What he's saying is rectify that before it's everlasting too late. But he uses what's on the mind of the Jews to make his point. So what is his point? His point is it's not just murder, it's hatred and animosity that is, that is forbidden. You do that before you can worship, and then he talks about the urgency of that in 25 and 26. Now let's look at the next contrast. He's saying my law goes further. It is not just adultery, but it's lust that is forbidden. He said you've heard it said by them of old. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that was Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 20. And the Jews would talk about that. You're not to commit adultery. They may do it, but they would talk about the law. And that was the law. But he said, mine goes further than that. It's not just the overt act of adultery that's forbidden. It's lust that's forbidden. forbidden. Look at verse 25. But I say to you, here's that phrase again, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. What he's saying is lust is adultery. The same sense in which hatred is murder, it leads to that same concept, same idea. Doesn't mean you've literally committed adultery, but what it's saying is it's the same sin, it's the same concept, it's that which leads to adultery. He's saying it's the lust. The lust itself is condemned. But let's go further. In verses 29 and 30, he talks about cutting off the offending parts. What does he mean by that? In other words, stop the sin. Go to extremes to stop the sin. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. So if you're looking with your eye and lusting, you would be better to take your eye out than to, 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 to lose your soul because you lusted. Now, he's not literally saying take your eye out, but if it took that measure to stop the sin, go to whatever measure it takes to do that. Let's go further at verse 29. For it is more profitable for you that your members perish than, one, than your whole body be cast into hell. That's Gehenna again. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Which would be better, to lose your eye and your hand or to lose your soul? See, my law goes further. Take whatever measures it takes. Go to extremes to cut off the sin. Now here's a third contrast in my kingdom. It is not a demand of a certificate of divorce, but it's unjust divorce that is forbidden. Look at verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I think here he's focusing on the law and the rabbinical interpretation of the law. And you say, why do you say that? Previously, we've quoted the law, and we said that was found in the Old Testament. He's, they're alluding, Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 24, obviously. But Deuteronomy 24 did not demand a certificate of divorce. It was an if-then kind of construction, if he divorces his wife. Not telling him to divorce his wife and telling him to give her a certificate of divorce. It's saying if he did it, here's the consequence thereof. So he's alluding partly to the rabbinical interpretation. In other words, the Jews gave great emphasis, if there is a divorce, make sure he gives her a certificate of divorce. All right? Jesus said, my law goes further. In my kingdom, the focal point is going to be on an unjust and unscriptural divorce. Let's see what that says. Look at verse 32. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, 
for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoso marrieth her who is divorced commits adultery. Now I want to jump over to Matthew 19 in verse 9 and then come back to this verse and notice the difference in the two. They're saying essentially the same thing, but one focuses on one thing and one focuses on another. We're more familiar perhaps with Matthew 19 in verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for fornication, except to be for fornication and marries another commits adultery. So a man divorces his wife for some reason other than fornication. When he remarries, he commits adultery. A man who divorces his wife for, uh, for fornication, when he remarries, he does not commit adultery. That's the focal point of Matthew 19 and in verse 9. But in Matthew chapter 5, the focal point is on the unjustness of a man divorcing his wife without a cause. Now, if he divorces her for fornication, it's a different story. But he's focusing on the unjust divorce and what he does to her. So let's go back and read verse 32. Whoever divorces his wife for some reason other than fornication or except to be for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. He bears some responsibility. The assumption is that if he divorces her, she will remarry. And when she does, she commits adultery and he bears some responsibility because he unjustly put her away. That's the focal point of verse 32. So in my kingdom, Jesus is saying, it is not just that when you get a divorce, you give a certificate of divorce. But you did wrong when unjustly putting her away. And whoso marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. But let's go again. Here's another contrast. It is not just false oaths, but dishonesty that is forbidden. Do you see how his law is going much further? Look at verse 33. In verse 33, he said, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord your oaths. The Pharisees took oaths lightly. I learned that partly from verse 33, but I learned more of that from Matthew 23. And their concept was this, that if I swear by God, then it's binding. But if I swear by the throne of God, it's not binding. So you can make an oath and you could swear. And there were times, depending on what you swore by, it might be binding and it may not be. So I could make a promise and give my word. But if I didn't swear by God, I don't have to do that. But if I swore by God, I do have to do that. So they made that distinction. So they took oaths very lightly. So what is Matthew 5 about? I think he's talking about common oaths. I'm not thinking that he's deal, dealing with judicial oaths because... Paul took an oath in Romans chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Romans 9. I don't think he's talking about being in court, though some brethren think that's the case. But I think he's talking about common oaths. Where one might, for example, in our day, it's not so much swearing by this or by that, but something, if I tell you something, I don't have to tell the truth. But if I swear I'm telling the truth, it has to be the truth. And so that again is taking your word very lightly. The Pharisees seem to do that. What Jesus demands is total honesty. In my kingdom is total honesty. Whether you swear or whether you don't or whether you swear by God or by his throne, it doesn't make any difference. Just be totally honest. Here's our phrase again. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Again, I think you're talking about common oaths. Casual oaths. 
Neither shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair black, uh, white or black. Now here verse 37 is the key. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. Water is more than these is of the evil one. In other words, be a person of your one it, a word. If you say yes, mean yes. And if you say no, mean no. Be a person of your word. If you say you will, do it. If you promise you will, do it. If you say you won't, don't. Be a person of your word. It ought not to be that a Christian, a man who is in the kingdom, has to say, I, I put my hand on the Bible and I swear I will do that for you to know he's going to do that. If he just says he will, he will. Christians are not always people of their word. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, here's what I demand in my kingdom. You need to be a person of your word. You need to be honest. It's not just false oaths I'm concerned about. I'm worried about honesty in my kingdom. Here's another contrast. Maybe, maybe not. Bench me forward back there, Will, if you will. See if it works. Now, at verse 38, beginning, it's not an eye for an eye, but he is saying, being good to your neighbor, verses 38 to 42. Let's look at verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the Pharisees dealt with revenge and retaliation. Now, let's talk about verse 38 for a moment. There are several Old Testament passages, according to verse, uh, uh, verse 38. Exodus chapter, I'm not going to take the time to trace these, but if you have footnotes in your Bible, column, center column reference or something of that sort, you might notice Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. All of those verses talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that was to be, in other words, if, if, you, if a man uh, took his eye out, his eye was to be taken out. But that was for the judges to execute. That was not for personal retaliation. You do me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong. You steal $10 from me, I'll steal $10 from you. That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I take revenge myself. Those laws in the Old Testament, that's not what that was about. The judges were to execute that, was the point. So the Pharisees were into this revenge and retaliation, that you do me wrong, I'll do you wrong. I'll get back even, I'll do exactly what you want me to do. I mean, what, what needs to be done. So Jesus taught a non-retaliatory gospel. So let's notice that beginning at verse 39. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, let's stop and talk about that. Is he saying, if someone does you wrong, you can't resist them? Someone says, I'm, I'm about to cut your throat. You just say, well, go ahead and do it. I'm not even going to try to knock the knife out of your hand. I'm not even going to try to push back. I'm not going to do that. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a non-retaliatory message. The same principle of Romans 12, it implies don't resist evil with evil. That's the point that he's making. But I tell you, do not resist an evil. Don't resist them by giving evil back to them. Don't do eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, again, it's non-retaliatory. He is not saying, if someone uh, takes a knife and cuts off one side of your, one ear off of the other, on one side of your face, then make sure he gets the other one too. That's not the point. The point is, don't retaliate. Not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now let's look at verse 40. If anyone sues you to take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. And if he compels you to go, I'll go with him too. And give to him who asks who wants to borrow and do not turn away. What's his point? Again, non-retaliatory. Better to give them more than they ask when you're sued. Better to turn the other cheek than to retaliate. 
That's what Jesus is emphasizing. It's a non-retaliatory. Because verse 32, verse 38, excuse me, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the idea of retaliation. Jesus taught non-retaliation in his kingdom. But here's another and final contrast which gets us to the end of the chapter. And that is, it's not for love for your neighbor only, but love for all. He said, you've heard it been said, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I don't know of a command. For example, I can't find in Exodus or Leviticus and Numbers or Deuteronomy, you love your neighbor, but you hate and despise your enemy. Now, the psalmist does talk some about hating his foe. Psalm 139, for example, verse 21 and 22. But certainly the Pharisees fit that description. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. In my kingdom, it demands love for all. So the, the Pharisees had this idea, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, verse 43. But Jesus said, you need to love all. Let's work through verses 44 to 48. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, even those who are your enemies. You pray for them. You seek their best interest. That's the idea of agape. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Take note of that. Because we're going to make a point about that at verse 48. What does the God do? God does not just send rain on the righteous people, but the unrighteous, he, he discards them of the rain. He sends the rain on the good and on the evil. Sends it on everybody. He sends the sun on everybody. Now verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You're no better than anybody else. In other words, get, the, get the point here. That in this multitude, you have the disciples perhaps up close, and you have the, the Pharisees on the peripheral and the scribes. And Jesus said, if you only love those that love you and love your neighbor only, you're no better than those Pharisees back there. You're no better than them. And if you greet your brethren only, verse 47, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors say, you're no better than the, than the publicans and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is not flawless, sinless perfection. That's not what he's talking about. It's the idea of completeness. Be complete like your father is complete. How is he complete? Go back to verse 45. That's why I said take note of that. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the sun on the just and the unjust. He's good to everybody. He doesn't just love the righteous only. He loves those who are unright. Doesn't mean he approves them, but he loves them. So what Jesus is saying is in my kingdom, you don't just love your neighbor only, but you love everybody. So what has he just told us in this section? I know that's a hurried look through verses 20 to 48, but what's his point? His point is, here is the righteousness of my kingdom. It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He goes much further than that. Now take note of two things in this section. Jesus is saying in my kingdom, my demands go further than the Old Testament and they go further than the scribes and the Pharisees. It goes further than both. What is it? Well, in my kingdom, it's not just murder, but it's hatred and animosity that's forbidden. See, that's a higher law. You see, in my kingdom, it's not just adultery, but it's lust. That's a higher law. It's not just a man, demand for divorce, but it's the unjust divorce. That's a higher law. It is not just false oaths, but it's dishonesty. That's a higher law. It's not an eye for an eye, but be good to your neighbor. That's a higher law. Don't just love your neighbor only, but love everybody. That's a higher law. This is a higher law. 
It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness of the kingdom. There are four things in this section. Two of which we see today and another we'll see in another study and another we'll see even in a third. So what is the point of the righteousness of the kingdom? It harmonizes with the Old Testament, number one. Number two, it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And thirdly, it has a relationship to God, chapter 6, and a relationship to man, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. That has to do with the righteousness of the kingdom. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you want to be in that kingdom Jesus has been talking about? It has higher principles, higher laws. It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Would you become a child of God even this very morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing?